you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. Now, this is a seminar. I'm not preaching this afternoon, so you've got to get into this, and I'll even entertain a question. They said that they wanted you to be reminded that I am, they are recording this for audio, so you can keep that in mind. Um, but I'd like to get... Now, I'm not going to probably get through in two sessions. I'm not going to get through the entire book of Galatians, but I want us to catch its, its power. And um, so I want to start, quick background, it's one of the earliest books that the Apostle Paul wrote early in his ministry. It was also written to what we think are Celtic people that uh, were inhabiting inhabiting, uh, Asia Minor there. And uh, we know the gospel penetrated Scotland and Ireland very early. We have St. Patrick, by the way, all, all due regards to my Catholic friends, he was not, from what we can tell, a Roman Catholic. He was a Sabbath-keeping early Christian, probably handed down. And Columba, who also from that little island of Ionia, helped spread the gospel, establish a mission station. And those Scottish people, I've got a lot of Scottish ancestry, they were pretty wild people. But the gospel has a way of calming the best of us. And if you know anything about them, they, they would, uh, their religion with the Druids, they were very much into spiritualism, paganism, and they would tattoo themselves, run around naked in the woods and do all kinds of awful things. And the way they would tell the future is about the time they felt their chief was too old, they would kill him and watch him die. And in his dying agonies, they'd figure they could tell the future. That's how low human beings will fall without the gospel. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? I'm so glad. We won't talk about everybody's ancestors in here. Because we've been delivered, and the Apostle Paul is, you can feel that youthful power of the Apostle Paul. I don't know how Paul is when he writes this, but it's certainly in his ministry, he's not an old man at this point. And, um, and he, he, he goes after it like a young man. He doesn't waste any time. He moves right into it. We're heading right into verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you're going to be lost. So I'm telling you ahead of time, you're going to need your Bibles this afternoon as we wrestle through this book. And I will entertain questions as we go along because this is a seminar and I didn't mean for it to be... Uh, I'm not prepared just to simply preach, although probably we could if we needed to. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men. What he's simply saying, he's going to establish his credentials. The first five or six verses of the a book of Galatians, some people say if we just had that alone, we would have the entire gospel of the Lord Jesus. But he says, first of all, he says, I want to remind you that I didn't show up there in Galatia because the brethren sent me. I didn't show up there because I just thought it would be a nice trip to see the scenery. I'm telling you that I showed up because God himself sent me. The Lord Jesus sent me. And so that means that Paul had a revelation. The book of Galatians is a revelation he had from God on, on the gospel. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There we have the resurrection. And then he includes the church. Now Paul is not a loner. And he says, and all the brethren who are with me had an entourage. They had a mission work. And he's saying, the brethren that are with me also, this comes to you from them. They're aware that I'm writing to you and they want you to know this. So we should never be isolated. We'll see that in the writings here of the Apostle Paul. We don't want to do anything in isolation. Every time I've seen somebody try to start a ministry in isolation or get the idea that they were, they were the only one left, invariably God has to come in and kind of pull things down. 
uh, we have to be very careful about that. We'll see as we go on. Grace to you, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. You think it was an evil age then? Is it an evil age now? Do we need deliverance from the evil age? The whole power, I am not ashamed, the book of Romans written later, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation. If you don't have the power of God in your, uh, and the power of the gospel, it's because you haven't believed. If you really believe, your life will be changed. It will not be the same. There will be a transformation of character, power of God. <clears throat> the gospel has power to deliver from the present evil age. So, hey, take, take good, wonderful comfort in this. And I'm at some point going to take this coat off. I'm sorry. Um, it's a seminar. It's not Sabbath morning. Um, present evil age. Do you think you have sophistication? you think the devil cunningly makes traps for you? Do you think he studies the Seventh-day Adventist church and lays out a snare? And I think he's got more than one. I think evil angels actually study our life. They study us from generation to generation. Evil angels know all of your forefathers and foremothers. And they look at you and they, they anticipate your coming. See, they're working a plan. Ellen White says in the book Great Controversy that the devil in the end of time is working his master plan of deception. And I want to say, praise God, Jesus is working his master plan of redemption. And those, those two come clashing in. So it doesn't matter what your heredity was. It doesn't matter if you have a heredity of Hinduism or you were a Muslim or you were just a pagan Christian. It doesn't matter where you came from. The gospel is able to deliver you from this present evil age. There's no age, there's no generation that God has not seen the temptations that are going to come to that age. So the gospel has power to deliver us from it. Verse 6. Now, he launches right in. I, this, there, there's, there's not a lot of diplomacy right here. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. What is a different gospel? Well, you better know what the gospel was in order to be able to tell what a different gospel was. You've never seen a third a counterfeit $13 bill because they don't make $13 bills. But if you study good, good money, you'll know what the, the real thing is. I marvel you so turn. What is the real gospel? What is this different gospel? Then verse 7, he says, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You think if the devil already was perverting the gospel of Christ the day of Paul, that he doesn't seek to pervert the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ now. And by the way, the devil is just like the terrorist. He uses, his, he uses our own weapons, if he can, against us. And so sometimes what he's done, he's taken the most powerful New Testament books outside the teachings of Christ, the book of Galatians and the book of Romans, and he's used them as a basis to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
So we need to understand these books. Instead of shying away, some people say, well, oh, you're an Adventist, so you're really not interested in the book of Galatians. I'll tell you, I'm an Adventist. I'm so thrilled that I have the book of Galatians. Because when I get done with the book of Galatians, the reason for our existence becomes so powerfully clear. And our message and why we exist comes so powerfully clear. What does it mean to have a perverted gospel of Christ? Verse 8, but even if we are an angel from heaven preached any other gospel to you, what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Do you think Paul's passionate at this point? I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. He said, listen, if an angel from heaven shows up to you and preaches a different gospel, let that angel be accursed. And then he said, later on, he says, if we do it, let us be accursed. Verse 9, as I've said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. For do I now, see, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now let me tell you, in one short statement, what the gospel is. We are saved by Christ alone. Somebody should have said amen. We are not saved by Christ plus anything. We are not saved by Christ plus anything. Anything else that tells you that you are saved by Christ plus is a perverted gospel. It is also a perversion of the gospel to pervert the gospel. So what do you mean by that? Well, there are many people who say, oh yes, I'm saved by Christ alone. By trusting in His righteousness. If I trust in Christ's righteousness for my salvation, then it is His righteousness, my dear friend, and not some righteousness of your own making. And His righteousness is defined by His Word. So if I tell you it doesn't really matter what Jesus asked me to do, I'm creating another gospel. Now stay with me. Verse 11. Now he's going to give his credentials. And uh, I may not spend as long here, but I'll spend a little bit of time here. For he's going, He wants to make sure we, we get something really, really clear because then we want to get to the fellowship lunch. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel, and he's talking to these, these Celtics that have been saved from paganism into the church, 
But I want to make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. What he's simply saying is, I didn't, I didn't invent this. I got this from Revelation. Don't, don't, don't praise me for this. I didn't come up with this. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, is there anything clearer than that? Is that clear? What he's teaching us in Galatians, he got from whom? He got it from Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, and he goes down through how, his uh, whole story there. But then he gets down to uh, verse 15. But it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately occur, confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So he says, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I got this as a revelation from Christ. I didn't go get it from the brethren. I didn't get it from the other apostles. But now he doesn't just leave, this, leave that alone. He, he does something else. But then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. This is going to be important in just a few minutes. And remained with him for 15 days. I don't know what I'm doing wrong with this, but. But I saw none other than the other apostles. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he spent two weeks with the apostle Peter. Now, some people have said, well, apostle Paul and apostle Peter had something going like, I don't say that at all. I don't see that in the gospels. Peter did say that there are some things that the apostle Paul has written that are hard to understand that some people pervert to their own destruction. Is that true with the teachings of Jesus? You ought to see what these New Age people do with the teachings of Jesus. They pervert it. So you can pervert the teachings of Paul if you're not careful. You don't weigh the whole thing. But he says, listen, I spent two weeks. Don't you, do you think that was a powerful two weeks that he and Apostle Peter spent together? And when he leaves the presence of Peter, he and Peter are one accord on what the gospel means. They both understood that the gospel was that you were saved by faith in Christ alone. Now, let's, let's go on. Afterward, verse 21, he talks about his missionary journey, and then verse chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. By the way, I, I really like Barnabas. You ought to do a study on his life. He's the one who got Paul involved in ministry. He went down to Tarsus, got Paul to come up to Antioch, and the two of them ended up going on a missionary journey. They were both powerfully preaching in Antioch, and they were seeing the church built up. And also took Titus with me. So now he's back 14 years later with Barnabas and Titus. And I went up by revelation. In other words, the Lord told him, Paul, go up and talk to the brethren. And communicated to them that the gospel which I preached to the Gentiles. So he says, I wanted to make sure that I've been preaching for 14 years, raising up churches. I wanted to make sure that the brethren in the Jerusalem that were in charge of the general conference, charge of God's work, that they knew what I was doing and there'd be no division among us. Don't you like that kind of sweet attitude? but privately to those who were of reputation, at least 
lest by any means I had, might run or had run in vain. In other words, at this point, he's saying to the brethren, look, this is what I've been doing. Tell me, is this the way you see it? Have I been doing the wrong thing? Have I been teaching the wrong thing? Now, I'll tell you what, that's doing due diligence. That's making sure that we're not going off on some tangent by ourselves. The church, we need one another. And he goes up to consult with the brethren by the revelation of Christ. Still with me? All right. You're doing pretty good. Hot afternoon, and we've already had lunch, and you've sat through a powerful sermon already, so you're doing good. Now, here we go. Verse 3, chapter 2. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Boom. So, he says... Galatians, I'm giving you this history so that you can understand that not even the general conference brethren said that Titus had to be circumcised. They did not require him to be circumcised. They said what we were doing was fine, that what we were teaching is what they taught. Verse 4, and this occurred because false brethren, this occurred, in other words, the, these, uh, this leaving the gospel, marvel that they've turned to another gospel. And this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth. By the way, the devil always doesn't come up. You, have you ever seen the devil show up and say, hello, folk, I'm the devil. I'm here to deceive you. It doesn't work that way. Stealth, he, he, he created stealth airplanes. You know what I mean. He created all that kind of thing long before we had it figured out. He comes in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ. Now, many people jump right on that word liberty. I want to tell you that we are free in Christ because we are free from sin. Isn't that good news? That is the liberty that we rejoice in, to be free from sin. This liberty that we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But, from those who seem to be something, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. He's simply saying that all these brethren, they, they didn't add anything to the gospel we were preaching. On the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been, that's another word for Gentiles, by the way, had been committed to me, and the gospel for the circumcised, which would be the Jews, was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me for the Gentiles. He was simply saying that the brethren saw that God had used Peter to reach the Gentiles. He'd used me to reach the, I mean, uh, used me to reach the Gentiles, Peter to reach the Jews. And the gospel we were teaching is the same gospel. Verse 9, and when James 
Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now we have a very interesting incident. Let me back up a little bit and just stop right here. here what is this false party? What, what is this party that shows up in the early church? Now, you have to understand the circumstance. You've got to remember that the temple at Jerusalem, the temple at Jerusalem is still standing. All the rituals are going on. The lambs are being slaughtered. The sacrifices are being made. Uh, the Jewish nation's whole nation revolves around that temple. You have all these new Christians. And do you think that they have, I'm talking, and most of them are Jews. Do you think they still have ties to that temple? Uh, listen, Jesus doesn't always reveal all the light at once. He, he uses, uh, what do they call it, one of those things that turns up the light a little bit at a time sometimes, uses that. Sometimes he turns it all on in certain cases, but, but he doesn't usually always do that because our eyes cannot take it. If you ever walked into a bright light, you know the feeling of that. Your eyes just can't adjust that quick. It takes time for the eye to adjust. So there is going to be a, a needed progression, and in that progression of taking the church from being tied to an earthly sanctuary is going to be painful. And there is to be expected some difficulty in giving up what they have been used to all of their life. This false party had come to the conclusion that you are saved by faith in Christ plus hanging on to the Jewish temple religion. You are saved by faith in Christ plus circumcision. Do you think they had, by the way, they didn't have the New Testament as we have it today. Do you think they had some Bible text to share? Do you think they talked about Abraham? Do you think they talked all the bases of circumcision? Do you think they talked about all of that kind of thing? They were into that. They had the thing. And, and they'd pretty soon taken these Gentile Christians that had been converted and they had pretty well convinced them that if you really want to be saved, you've got to at minimum, you're far away from the temple, but minimum, you've got to at least be circumcised or you will be lost. But Pete, Paul has said, now look, I've, I've been to Peter for two weeks, I've been to the disciples, John, James, and the others. They're all saying that they didn't require Titus to be circumcised and now fellowship lunch. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to... I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Whoa. I told you he had some vigor of youth here. And he's not being very diplomatic. He simply said, Peter was to be blamed. I stood him to his face because he was flat out wrong. 
and I need, we needed to correct it. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who are the circumcision. Now let's just, he calls him a hypocrite in the next verse, by the way. Let's just get the picture here. All week long, or however long Peter had been there with, uh, with uh, Paul, he, he'd just been having a great time. The Gentile Christians were there, and they were all eating together, and they were fellowshipping together, and, and they were just having a wonderful time in the Lord, and they were making progress for the gospel, and they were preaching and teaching, and maybe they were coming back in the evening and having an evening meal. And all of a sudden, this group, though, from James shows up. Now, these are the guys that are certain that you will not be saved unless you believe in Christ plus circumcision. And they show up, and the minute they show up, they don't have to say anything. All they have to do is show up. Ever found that in your life? I don't want you to raise your hand. Ever had the time when you know everything was going good and then somebody shows up and you say, I, I better not get too closely associated with those folk because those folk don't like those folk. And if they see me palling around with those folk, these folk over here are not going to like me because you, you got the picture. So Peter, when these guys show up, Peter will no longer sit at the same table with the Gentiles. He'll only eat with his party from James because they're all circumcised and these guys aren't circumcised. And that just... Paul just had it. Now, it, there's another reason. He just didn't just go off the beam, so to speak. The Apostle Paul understood the implications of this. He understood if he did not hit this thing in the bud, that the entire Christian church was in jeopardy. And let me tell you, if you look at Roman and Byzantine Christianity and a lot of Christianity today, the Apostle Paul was right to stand up to Peter and deal with this as it is right right then he needed to deal with it. And this is what he said. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Oh no, not you Barnabas. Not wonderful Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Let me tell you, this thing has a powerful appeal. If it can suck in somebody like Barnabas, it's got to have some kind of appeal to the human heart. Because there's always somewhere we want to come to some conclusion that we can be saved in Christ, but if we could just add a little... But the moment you add anything to being saved by faith in Christ alone, the minute you add anything, you nullify the grace of Christ. Now, somebody may be saying, what about sanctification? Just hold on. I got some other things that will sound whatever, but they're going to turn out okay. Like I said sometimes to people, hear the end of the conclusion. I need to stop at five. Am I right, brother? Five? Okay. I got, I'm, I'm going to stop on time tonight. All right, let's, uh, let's move down by, to verse 15. But we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, 
And the law here, by the way, means the whole entire Jewish system. It means the tabernacle and everything that's there. Now, I've had people say to me, now, it, it, means, everything, it means all the Jewish rituals, but it does not include the Ten Commandments, right? I said it includes all of it. They said, no, you didn't, you didn't mean that. You, you didn't mean that it includes the Ten Commandments. I said, well, are the Ten Commandments in the sanctuary? Now, now you're starting to look troubled. If you just be patient, this is, by the way, uh, I will, this is part one, and I'll do part two tomorrow. So, for whatever that's worth, department. And I want to promise you that it'll turn out all right. I want to promise you that when we get done with Galatians, we will say with the Apostle Paul, do we then make void the law of God through faith? God forbid we establish the law. But we are not justified by anything that is in that tabernacle. Neither the moral law nor the ceremonial law that's there. We'll, we'll, we'll punch in more on that in a little bit. Verse 17. But if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves and we ourselves are found sinners. Paul goes on one of his little tangents here. Is Christ, therefore, the minister of sin? Certainly not. Uh, the illustration was used this morning about somebody that says, I give a wonderful testimony, but then he goes home and he acts awful. Uh, is the gospel undone at that point? The gospel's not undone at that point at all. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with a person who's lost their faith in the gospel. Verse 18, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, let me just go over and say, look, look, if I, had a, if I have a, a doghouse and it's a wretched doghouse and I tear it apart and I put it out toward the garbage and then I say to myself, why did I do that? I like that miserable doghouse and I go get the miserable doghouse and I rebuild it again. What would you say about me? You say, you're nuts. Why did you spend all that time tearing it down and now just turn around and build it back? What the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, we're saved by faith alone in Christ and we're not, we, we, we've torn down all this pagan stuff that somehow you can add to your salvation or save yourself. We've torn all that down. He says, I'm not going to go back and rebuild that up. Get that really clear. And then he comes to, to what I think is some of the most powerful part in the New Testament. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. If you leave your finger there and turn to Romans chapter 5. Six for just a moment. I had to spend a little time here. Romans chapter 6. And I want to look at verse 5. Leave your finger in Galatians. We're coming back to Galatians. You've been very quiet. I haven't heard any questions this afternoon, so we must be okay. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, what does it mean to be united with Christ in the likeness of of his death. Let me tell you what it means. It means that you come up in front of God's Ten Commandments and you look in the mirror of the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mirror of the character of God and you see yourself and you repent in sackcloth and ashes over your sins. You weep over your sins. I'll tell you, I don't think you've ever repented hardly if you haven't wept over your sins. 
And you weep over your sins. When you, when you have that kind of repentance, when you in sackcloth and ashes, as it were, say, oh God, you've got to forgive. I repent. I don't want to go there anymore. I am so sorry for what I have done. When you repent in sackcloth and ashes, that is dying with Christ. Because what Christ did is, and I can't explain this, I don't know how he did it, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I can't get time to get into that right this second. All I know is, according to Romans chapter 6, that Jesus took my carnal nature and he killed it on Calvary's cross. So when I come face to face in repentance with the law of God, then I die. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't leave you dead. Now, before I go on to the next word, which is certainly, I, I'd like to have explored that a little bit more this morning, but I didn't. But let me talk a little bit about the word substitution. It's very popular, by the way, in much of the Christian world today to teach that Jesus really didn't die for your sins. He didn't pay a penalty. He died, but he didn't pay a penalty for your sins. It's... Uh, it's popular. In fact, even among certain Adventist circles, there are people that are saying, look, look, you know, Jesus really didn't pay the penalty. God doesn't really have any judicial anger. Uh, a sermon like I gave this morning makes this folk very, very uncomfortable. But you're going to have to get your scissors and cut out half the Bible. But let me talk about the substitution thing because it's very, very important that we understand it. Now, some of you understand, I think, very clearly. I talked about Adam and Eve this morning. If when, once man fell, you had, he had to be saved. And since we were all in Adam, when Adam chose to sin, he acted for all of us. We call that substitution. Now, we do that all the time in our current world. I'll use the illustrations, two illustrations. Have you ever seen somebody that is rooting for their favorite ball team in front of a television? And they're saying, go, go. And, and, you know, and they, they cross the goal line or they do whatever and then they're jumping up out of their seat and they're yelling and saying, oh, we won, we won, we, we, we won. And you know, they go to work the next morning and what do they say to the people that they work with? They walk over to them, the shoulders standing up, they're standing tall and, and uh, their friends, they, of course, they were rooting for the opposite team and they say, you know, we, we beat you guys. I mean... <laughs> We cleaned your clock. I mean, and you know, the, the bragging just goes on and on and on. We just, they never touched the ball. <laughs> Am I right? That's called substitution. They put their faith in that team, whatever that team did, it was like it was them. By the way, we do the same thing in war. What do we tell the Europeans? When the Europeans don't do what we want them to do, what do we tell them? We say, don't you remember World War II? We, we, we saved you from those crazy Nazis. Don't you remember? We did that. Anybody in this room ever fought World War II? Can I see your hand? Nobody. Why do we say we? Because we allowed those soldiers to act in our place. 
That's exactly what's happening here. Adam begins to operate in our place. So whatever he did happened to all of us. That's why we're all born in sin. That's why we got a mess. We got a problem. The devil understood that. That's why he goes to the juggler thing. So what we need is another Adam. Where do you get another Adam? Since we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, it's not going to be one of us. There's two criteria to be another Adam. One of those criteria is that you have to be responsible for creating all of us. And number two, you've got to be a human being. The only place you're going to find a second Adam is in the Godhead itself. And when Christ became a baby in in the manger of Bethlehem, he instantaneously qualified to be the second Adam. So whatever he does, he now does for all of us. Isn't that good news? That's wonderful news. And the world needs that. We all need that. So he is now our substitute. So he now dies our death. And I say hallelujah. So when I put my faith in him, when I put my faith in him by means of repentance, he calls me to repentance. That was the great sermon, the great message of his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When I repent, I die. Now I'll tell you the good news is found in that next word. Certainly, in verse 5 of Romans chapter 6, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The good news is that you die in repentance and Jesus doesn't leave you dead. What does the word certainly mean? It means for sure. It's going to happen. It's not a chance that it's not going to happen. Certainly you shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That is the new birth experience. You repent in sackcloth and ashes and the Holy Spirit reaches down, makes a new creature out of you. You come resurrected up and now you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you must experience this resurrection, death and resurrection. If you do not experience this death and resurrection, this spiritual death, and the spiritual resurrection, you will not experience the literal death and resurrection at the end of time. Let me put it better. Everybody experiences the death and resurrection, but you'll come up in the wrong resurrection because you never got rid of that old man, Christ Jesus. So you have to die in repentance. Now, I know that if you look down in verse 11... I know I'm not in Galatians, but I think it's okay. We'll go back to Galatians in a minute. I like the New American Standard. It says in in verse 11, this one it says, reckon, verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to reckon yourself? It says consider yourself dead. What does it mean when it says consider yourself dead? It means that... You're dead, but you're not dead. That means the old man is still around. Do you have a good imagination? You with me? Okay, watch. Tell me what this is. See how good your imagination is. What did I draw? A heart. That's your heart. There are two things in your heart. Now, for the theologians, please don't take an illustration and push it 
you know, over the hill. Just use it for what it was meant for, okay? You have to give disclaimers nowadays, you get in trouble. What was that? It's a chair. More refined, it's a throne. Got it? What do you do from a throne? You give orders. How many of you like to give orders? Don't raise your hand. You go do this, you do this, you do this. But we have on our throne, we have somebody that gives orders. You have, these are the executive powers of your mind. You decided to come to this convocation, and so, at some point you made a decision. You went and got your suitcase packed, you got your keys out, and you came. Those were all executive decisions in your mind. Also, you probably won't get this one. In your heart down below is, that's a rectangle in case you didn't catch it. That's a jail. Do with me? So here, here's what happens. When you, when you repent and Jesus resurrects you, you, you see, if you leave that old man, when you're born, that old man's on the throne, he's giving orders, and if you leave him on the throne, he's going to kill you. And at some point, you recognize that, and so you cry out to Jesus, and you say, please come and help me. I, I'm, I'm going to die if you don't help me. Jesus, I'm, I'm happy to help you. You come in, repentance, resurrection, spiritual resurrection, and Jesus comes into your life, he grabs that old guy off the throne, and he shoves him in the jail and locks it. And Jesus set him on the throne. Now he's giving the orders. You go do this, don't do that, please do this. Some Christians don't like Jesus. They still want to get themselves back on the throne. I'll talk about that in just a second. Jesus is on the throne. But pretty soon, you know, the old guy is down there, and after a while he goes, psst, 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 psst. hey, psst. remember me. Remember me? Remember those good things we used to do? By the way, sin has a pleasure for a season. Remember when I used to let you drink? Or we used to go to? Yeah. Remember how? Yeah. By the way, who has the key to the jail? So he says, you know, you could do that again, but... You just got to let me out of here. And in a moment of weakness, you grab the key, you unlock the door. Now, this is painful. He grabs Jesus, and he puts Jesus in the jail. He climbs on the throne, and he says, go. And pretty soon you hear another voice, and it says, well, did you like that? Oh, and you recognize who the voice is. And you repent in sackcloth and ashes. And you say, oh, Jesus, how could I disappoint? How could I? Jesus says, you have the key. You unlock the door, and Jesus grabs that old man, throws him in there, slams the door. I'm going to tell you why Seventh-day Adventists have Christian standards. 
It's because I want that old man in my life to go blind and deaf. I want him to go comatose. Get the point? So don't feed him. How come this is so hard for us to understand? How come we can't get this? Don't feed him. How do you feed him? By what you choose to watch. By what you choose to listen to. Don't give him what he asked for. He's going to yell, scream, bloody murder, stand on his head, but after a while he gets so hungry, he'll run out of energy. You want him dead in your life. Now, he will never be dead, dead till you're dead. You understand what I mean? But he can get weak. He can get so weak that he has absolutely no power in your life. When the devil came to Jesus, Jesus said about himself, when he comes, when the devil comes, he will find nothing in me. In other words, there's nothing to respond. Now, you won't get there tomorrow. It's the work of a lifetime. But you want to pursue holiness. You never know when you arrive. You follow me? The people who think they have arrived haven't arrived. It's the Bible that says pursue holiness. It is our work to pursue Christ. All holiness is, is Christ-likeness. That's why I rejoice to be resurrected, spiritual resurrection. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't leave me dead. He resurrected me. He gave me a new birth. He, he himself now sits on my throne. I am thrilled that he is in charge of my life and by his grace and by his power and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to keep him in charge of my life. Back to Galatians. I'll close with this. Now you understand maybe better the powerful punch of Galatians 2.20 that encompasses both justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification are two different things but they inevitably work together by faith. Faith is the chain that drives both wheels of the bicycle. Justification gives birth to sanctification, and sanctification is what keeps my justification in place. Stayed with me? Summed up in these words? For I, am, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. It's well said this morning by someone, you are justified by faith and you process, you live in sanctification by faith. There's no 
adding of anything of yourself. It is by faith alone. I will trust Jesus to forgive my sins. I will trust Jesus to be my substitute. I will trust that His life takes the place of my life. Justification. And I also trust that Jesus has the power to transform me, make me a new creature. I believe that on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. It is that trust in Christ and my willingness to surrender to His Lordship that keeps me intact as a Christian. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. By the way, that's a living faith in the Son of God. A what? A living faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Next time we'll answer the question, is the law of God against the promises of God? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for those powerful statements that we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for us. Oh, Lord, make that the experience of every one of us within the sound of my voice and far beyond. In Jesus' name.